Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined, as always, by my co-host, Corey. Today, we have a guest, Dr. Sarah Michaud. Is that how it's Michaud. Saying? Michaud? Yeah. Oh, I butchered it. That's <laughs> all right. Everybody does. <laughs> so sorry, but so happy that you're uh, here to join us today. Uh, you are residing down in a new place in Boston, that is correct? Somewhere in the Boston area? Yep, in the central mass outside of Boston. Yep. Yeah, and you just downsized your house. You got yourself a nice, cool setup <laughs> with uh, more space outside, less space inside. Is that correct? Very much so. Yes. I, I always say to people, I just live in the woods. I'm more space the older I get. <laughs> less people, more space. It makes sense to me. Uh, so one of the reasons that uh, we sought you out was because you have just published a book. This is the book here. There we go. It's called yep. it's called Co-Crazy. Co-crazy. One Psychologist Recovery from Codependency and Addiction. You were kind enough to send us a, an actual copy, which sure. is great. Lots of people yeah. want to do a e-text. So, and I like having a, a real book I can read. So. And uh, yeah, it was a good read. The message is great. And uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. And maybe we can learn some interesting things that aren't in the book as well and uh, discuss some of the stuff that's in there. So, you know, it's funny. We, Nathan and I have been doing this for over a year and we continue to find new topics to discuss and new avenues of in the discussions about addiction and about mental health. We have not had an episode about codependency. Right. Uh, so far. So your timing was really great. And we're anxious to sort of hear more about what you can, what you can teach us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it so goes hand in hand because I mean, my belief is really that underneath a lot of the addictions are people's untreated codependency and the word codependency drives me nuts because I feel like it's so overused now. Mm. I mean, people throw it around and I mean, I don't know if you know any of the history. I mean, I'm a lot older than you guys, but like back in kind of the 70s, you know, the ACOA movement started the adult children of alcoholics. And there was, you know, and then Melody Beattie came out with Codependent No More and mm-hmm. Janet Voights and all the adult children, John Bradshaw, all those people back in kind of the 80s that coined the word really. I think it was coined in like 68, but but now it's just tossed around. Everybody kind of uses it. And I think the definition has also changed over the years, as far as I'm concerned anyways, because I really want to bring it more into the mainstream. I mean, you could say the whole country's codependent. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when you look at what's going on now, you know, what other people are doing are greatly affecting how I'm feeling or someone is feeling. I mean, so there's there's much broader definitions. And because the early, the first definition, of course, really was the classic stereotypical male alcoholic with the housewife female codependent. And she enabled her husband by not being able to deal with his drinking and getting really upset. And, you know, he would just drink more. And, you know, then, you know, the Bill W started AA, his wife started Al-Anon. And, you know, they realized, oh, she's got to focus on herself and let him get himself sober and all of that. So it was very kind of that stereotypical, you know, enabling the alcoholic and male, female and all that. And I, I really see it as a way of relating that starts way early on 
I mean, I call it your earliest object relations in psychological terms, you know, the parent-child dynamic. However that started, that's really going to be how we relate to all people eventually. I mean, that's why it's so powerful to me. But yeah, so it's a, it's a broad term to me now. And I would really define it more as a lack of a sense of self and that I'm getting my, the way I feel about myself is basically on how the world responds to me. So mm -hmm. yeah. I can only feel okay if other people around me are okay. And that's the dependency mm -hmm. piece. Right. And, you know, if you grow up with parents that are not the healthiest, you're going to learn from three or four or five, geez, I need to make them okay. So I'm okay. And that, you know, and then that plays out in our romantic relationships and yeah. all kinds so of relationships, a, frankly. Yeah. This is a people pleasing type behavior. And uh, it's one that we've discussed before as something that is not always, but often, especially with healthcare professionals, part of addictive behavior eventually. And the reason is often a lack of an ability to say no, a lack of an ability yes. to draw boundaries that are healthy. And most importantly, which is, I believe, the underlying kind of message in your book is an ability to understand that just like uh, when you're on an airplane and there's a crisis and the the mask comes down. The reason they tell you to put your mask on first before right. you start helping everyone else, there's a reason for that. And it's because if you're not, if you're not well yourself, you're not equipped to help anyone anyway, whether right. you're, you know, you, have, you might have the best intentions in the world, but. Right. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, I agree. The, the codependency, the, the word, I think uh, it exploded out of the Minnesota model. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think you're right there around the seventies was when, uh, that really yep. started to take off. And then it became humongous in the nineties. And um, yeah, now I think it's, it is definitely seen in a different light and um, there's perhaps more kind of back and forth with the word codependency and how it relates to enabling and how that relates to different ways that people look at uh, addictive behavior. But uh, the other term is the, title of your book, which is co-crazy. So what, uh, is there a difference well, between co-crazy I mean, and codependency? They're really the same thing, but the reason I, you know, I didn't want to say codependency in the title, but really my experiences with clients and patients over the years and myself, my own experience and friends and sponsees and programs and stuff is people often come to therapy for a relationship issue, right? And what they've described to me over the years is they would say, I feel crazy. And so that's where it kind of came to be that co-crazy term is even though they were spending, say a parent would come in and their 25-year-old son moved home and they're doing everything they can to help them and to fix them and to get them, you know, off of opiates, say, what's happening in reality is their life is getting worse and the kid's life is getting worse. So nobody is getting better. And they start to feel like they're going crazy because they say to themselves, why is it, Sarah? You know, why is it that I'm spending all this time calling professionals, making appointments, sending them to treatment? 
you know, they're doing all these things and telling their kid how to get well, but they seem to be getting worse. And meanwhile, their life is imploding and they're like spending all this money. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I call in the book, the big lie. It's like the belief for so many people. And I think it's highlighted in addictive relationships is if I focus on this other person and you can, you know, it's on a spectrum. It could be in a marriage. If I focus on this other person and I try to help them and get them well, why then aren't they getting better? And why am I getting worse? And so it's this real tricky, delusional thinking that, oh, really the solution is, I like you just said, Nathan, I have to focus on myself. I have to put the mask on myself. And if I can get better, then ultimately perhaps they can get better. Not always. I mean, the classic is I'll have a, you know, a couple come in and they've been married for 25 years and the guy's drinking and the wife finally says, you know, gets up the courage, you know, to say, I need you to move out for three months. And then the guy gets sober and the woman's like, well, why didn't you get sober for the last 20? Well, you never asked me to. I mean, again, it's not like his recovery is in her hands. That's not it. But. If you're not going to speak up about what you need, another person is just going to keep doing what they've always done. I mean, yes. and that's where the whole responsibility piece comes in. Yes, there is an onus on there's an onus on both people for sure, regardless of whether it's a, you know, an, uh, somebody who's having trouble with drugs or alcohol and uh, a spouse. If the communication isn't there. And this yes. is a big problem uh, for many different reasons. It can be actually deadly when uh, somebody's absolutely, you know, hiding some some kind of addictive behavior that ends up uh, in an overdose or something that could have easily been prevented if the you know if a door's communication were open. Right. But, um, right. Why do you I, think? Uh, go go ahead, ahead, Corey. I was just going to say, I to me the term kind of makes sense when I think back to myself and and and. We've, we've talked a lot about about perfectionism on this podcast about uh, like when you, you you know if if I do more yeah I will be enough and if I do more particularly for other people then I will be enough and, yes and I can't you know how many times I either in my interpersonal relationships or at work particularly at work where I would go to work and shift after shift oh push myself to the brink of collapse and still, and then require we started to require or think I required narcotics to yes keep myself up to that, and then I would I was always saying to myself, you know, damn it, I just did it again. I just right. pushed myself to the brink again. I just did it again. Did this again. Did this again. And it was right. like, why can't I break this cycle? So the co crazy thing to me means like like asking ourselves like, oh. Why did I just do that again? <laughs> when right. I it, well, and I, it's why, like, and it's that whole thing about why don't I put myself first? Do you know what I mean? Why is it mm -hmm. more important that the patients at your job are happy, but I'm not? Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay to work three shifts in a row or whatever. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Absolutely. And nurses, but I mean, half my clients were nurses. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I nurses, believe you. It's a health field, doctors. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so much addiction in the helping fields, teachers, I mean, social workers. I mean, so you guys, that's probably what your show is, right? I think you help a lot of people in that. Yeah. 
Because again, I think, again, if we looked at the codependency piece, if the underlying piece is the codependency and I can't stop saying no, then the addiction is how I'm coping with that. You know what I mean? I can't say no and yeah. I can't tolerate oh. what's ever happened. You know, you're, what's you're happening. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a, it becomes a situation where the drug or the alcohol is just an easier way to deal with Yes. That uncomfortable feeling where it, yes. you know, it's going to take courage. Somebody's going to probably be, you know, it's going to be somebody, maybe whether it's a customer, a client, a patient or a spouse, they're going to be uncomfortable right. and you don't want to have that conversation. So you just numb out. Right. 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 Why do you think it's uh why do you think it is kind of a human condition for so many of us? I mean, as a psychologist, you probably see this just so much where people are unable to put themselves first. What What do you think it is about our culture? I, don't th- I mean, you know, I've read Buddhism for years and stuff, and I just, I don't think people like being uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I think the human condition is, I mean, and this is <laughs> what so... What a great answer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we don't like being uncomfortable, and we don't like to be in pain. I mean, so, I mean, think about it. How many people change behaviors unless they have to? Mm. I mean, that's what addiction is all about, right? And the thing with um, code crazy is or codependency is, is, and that's what I really wanted to get to in the book was for so long, it's like the codependent person was kind of the victim, you know, like, oh, my husband's drinking or depressed and I'm the one that has to take care of him. And where I wanted to take it was, oh, no, you're getting something out of it. You know, that's that's why I really wanted to take it to this other level, which is it's really about me. I can't tolerate and you you both have touched on this. I can't tolerate what's happening inside me if I say I need mm-hmm. to ask you to leave. It's not about what they're going to feel. It's about what I'm going to feel, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think human beings, it's just, I mean, and think about the culture now. I mean, there's so much stimulus and you're constantly, bu- think of the busyness addiction. I mean, mm-hmm. people to me are getting further and further away from themselves, which means I'm going to have to do more. You know what I mean? Rather than really the solution is, you know, being more with yourself, tolerating what's happening, you know, noticing what's ha- just identifying what's happening. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah I was just going to say that Huge. there's got to be some loss of awareness with the way that our culture is uh, super distracted. Our attention spans yes. are super fragmented. Maybe now it's harder for people than ever to, to do that check-in that, uh, you know, was maybe a, a little bit easier 10, 20 years ago where you could you right. know, calm down after work and think about what's going on in your life and be aware of, you know, that, uh, that feeling inside, like you, you describe it as a, I like the way you put it as a relentless, low grade chronic hum of anxiety. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, if you're not, I think people are capable of continuing on and on and on and on and on, especially if they're very busy and distracted and there can be all sorts of sirens and bells going on psychologically. Right. And right. they've just basically chosen not to pay attention. It's like we're in, you're going to put your earmuffs on and just keep trucking. Right. Right. 
And I, and that's why I do think it usually takes something like a relationship crisis. I don't know, a physical, a, me a mental crisis or a um, physical crisis. Something happens medically, you know, they go to their physical and their liver enzymes are up or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it takes something to push someone over. I mean, you guys are, have had relationships, right? When do you really address it? When someone says to you, Hey, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. You know, now I have to look at myself and and do something about it. Or if I'm in enough pain or discomfort about something my partner is doing, then I'll do something about it. But people, you know, with work addiction, I mean, there's so many ways people cope with their issues today. I mean, addictions, yes, distraction, anything. Right. So it's hard for someone really to get in touch with that or want to get in touch with that. Even though to me, that's where peace, peace resides. If I yes. can get rid of all that stuff and I'm able to be with myself, I'm going to be peaceful and okay, no matter what happens. And if you're addressing those concerns that you should be addressing. Yeah. Yes. So, so your career must've been just full of uh, trying to motivate people to be aware of these types of uh, things that they're not addressing. And then, you know, and trying to constructively work them towards getting up the courage to fix those problems or at least start to start to fix them. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I'm, I was lucky that, I mean, I started in at McLean hospital, which is like a big psych hospital around here. And that's where I got trained and was in the detox. And then they opened a residential. I don't know how, what you guys label it up in Canada, like residential treatment centers and detoxes. So then I went to a residential and started their program. And then I had a practice for 25 years. But most of the people that came to me, a good percentage of people wanted to stop using. I mean, I was the addiction person with this group of therapists. Oh, okay. But, you know, so it's tricky, though, because everybody's different. Like, because I'm sober, like, I wouldn't spend a year seeing someone if they were using. That's just not what I would do because I don't think that's helpful. You know, other therapists would. I say to someone, if someone comes to me for a substance use problem, I say, look, why don't we spend three months together, especially if they're not, if they're ambivalent about quitting. You know, I'll say, let's spend three months together. You tell me what you want to do. Do you want to cut down? Do you want to quit? Do you want and we'll have a plan of action. And then let's see after three months if it's working. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that say somebody, and I don't know what your guys' belief system is around this, but say someone would come in and say, okay, I want to control my drink. And they, I'd say, I'd say to them, well, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to have two drinks on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and uh, three drinks on Saturday. And I'd say, okay, that's what you're going to do. And the thing with that is ultimately it never works out. Ultimately, someone may be able to do that for a couple of months, maybe till there's a wedding, maybe whatever. They may be able to do it for a little while, but ultimately, if they have an addiction problem, they can't keep it to that level. And so then we have to make some kind of decision. Do you want to, because the thing with controlled drinking is, even if someone is maybe drinking two drinks on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the rest of the time they're obsessing about it. 
So the, the addictive compulsive behavior, like the obsessive compulsive behavior, the compulsive behavior may have slowed down, but the obsessive behavior will increase. So, you know, again, everybody's different. I mean, what's really funny about this is I'm going to give you a great example. So I just moved into this little house and I have a landlord and he lives in this, the big house next door. And when I moved in and he heard I worked with addiction, he gave me this like, oh, no. So I guess he was married to a woman who was an alcoholic for 25 years and he just divorced her. So he is fixing something in my house in the middle of January. And he's and it's like January 15th. And I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, I just quit drinking sugar and caffeine. And it's like January 15th. And I said, oh, and. Uh, I said, that's great. And he said, it's dry January. And I'm thinking to myself, it's January 15th. And he had only done it for three days. So first of all, he didn't start January 1st for dry January. He didn't get to get to it till the 15th. So he comes over the other day and I said, you know, how's it going? And he says, I haven't drank in seven weeks. As he was leaving, he said, oh, but I've, you know, about five times I have gone out with some friends. So in his mind, he hasn't drank for seven weeks, except for the five times. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like addiction to me is so insidious and such a mental, it's called the mental illness, but it has so many mental components that he can believe he's sober, but he's drank five times. And again, there's something wrong with that if he's not an addict, but he's saying, I haven't drank for seven weeks. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I I hear what you're saying. And I think this is a a real problem with, uh, insidious is a good word that I like to use with alcohol because uh, alcohol is is a different animal. And- What the way I look at it is if you're going to uh, like uh, say your client there who is who did want to manage the alcohol use there. Yeah. I mean, there is ways you can do that with the the Sinclair method is a is a good way to do it. Um, but what what I would suggest for people who are trying to do that is that they get 90 days of abstinence in before they make that decision. Decision. Right. Uh, and the, the reason for that is because it allows for uh, 90 days. There's, there's pretty good evidence behind that as being a length of time that's sufficient for Got some it. clarity to return so that you can start to get that insight that alcohol itself in its right. insidious nature is preventing you from seeing. As you're talking about this right. gentleman who who's, right. thinks he isn't drinking, but he's still drinking. Right. When you're in that pattern, yes. especially with alcohol, it's very difficult to get to, to slow down Um, with most uh, addictive. uh, I mean, it's possible to do it with other drugs, but I believe it's most productive to have at least 90 days of abstinence. And then after that point, you've got some clarity and you can, and you can see the difference in your life and you say, well, you know, which, which substance was, was, was it a poly substance issue? And if so, which substance worked, which didn't, you know, you can make decisions based on that at that time. Right. Uh, I'm not, uh, for some people, abstinence is going to probably be the best way to live their life for other right. people. Whatever works for every individual. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be, but alcohol is just such a tough one. And then, 
So, (laughs) and I, I tip my hat to anybody who, who is able to, to manage that long-term such as yourself. Right. I mean, uh, it, it, it's gotta be up there with one of the, you can't think your way out of it, you know, because it's your ability to make decision right off the bat. So you really have to make a leap of faith to get out of there. Well, that's the thing with addiction too. And I mean, we, and again, we may have different beliefs around this, but the mental component, and it's not just with addiction. I mean, I think like you guys are talking about, a lot of this is the human condition. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can rationalize or minimize or deny anything. I mean, denial was one of Freud's defenses, right? So it's not like, it's not like these are just concepts to addiction. But the problem with addiction is I think they just become so extreme. I mean, I mean, I've heard people minimize and rationalize everything. Mm-hmm. And even when people get sober, they can still, I've rationalized behaviors. We can still rationalize things. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Because we want to feel okay about our behaviors. Mm-hmm. But we somehow can make it okay. You know, oh, I had an affair, but you know what? My wife wasn't having sex in there, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? We can rationalize anything. So it is tricky because, I mean, the thing with alcoholism or a lot of addictions is it tells you you're okay when you're not. So your mind will say, oh, I could drink tonight. I've been, I haven't drank for three weeks. I'll go out with John tonight. We'll have a couple of drinks. You know, that's what it says to you. So mm. it is, unless you have some spaciousness and knowledge that it does get you mentally, you yeah. know, I mean, that's why it know. takes a few kicks at the can, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you, you ask you, or I guess you implore the yeah. reader or the client to ask some really tough questions of themselves, of themselves. Right. And right. So is it all about like the word that keeps coming up in my mind right now is avoidance. Yeah. You know, like you, I, I really liked your chapter on fear. Yeah. And, and some of the really tough questions that you're, you're requesting us to ask ourselves, right? Like, what are we actually afraid of? When did, when was the first time we recall that fear? Yeah, right. that was interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, I could, I sort of went through those questions and I've. Did you, I, did you I have did, well, an insight? Well, I, I've done ample therapy. Right. <laughs> I've done, I've answered some of those questions before, but, yes, but it, of course. it's really true that I could, um, I was able to identify the fear I felt as an adult, both with addictive behavior and relationships and draw that, draw a line right back to childhood with that. Yes. And the fear I think was part of the the word that comes with the fear was avoidance. Yes. Avoidance of of a avoidance of a reaction, avoidance of discomfort. Yes. Um, And, and I, I guess I wanted to ask you too, do you, what do you then do with the resistance that comes up from people, because you're asking people, uh, that's a pretty tough, you're asking them to sort of look inward and say, Hey, right. go there. What do you do when there's resistance there? Well, I think it depends how, again, how much someone is suffering. I mean, to me, a lot of people have anxiety, right? And so if someone's anxious or depressed, 
you know, my feeling is anxiety and depression are kind of like these umbrella diagnoses. And really, there's a lot of things underneath them, right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. guys know this, yeah. you know, sadness and anger and, you know, um, fear and powerlessness and helplessness and trauma, all these things underneath it. And so if someone is, and for me, the anger piece, I really, the reason I wrote the chapters on fear and anger is to me, and I'm kind of a simple person in the sense of, you know, the way I work, you know, I'm very kind of like fact-based and I really believe that the anger and fear, and I think for a lot of human beings, not just addicts, is really at the bottom of so much of our symptomology mm -hmm. and our agitation and our anxiety. So I really believe, and you guys know Gabor Mate probably, and mm -hmm. all the stuff on the nervous system and our systems being amped up. I really believe that if you can get in touch with whatever your beliefs are, your past wounds, or your do some of these processes that I do with people around their resentments and their fears, you can really identify, gee, when did this start? You know, something happens where, you know, and it's not necessarily even a trauma for a lot of these fears. And a lot of the fears are interpersonal, you know, rejection, someone getting mad, abandonment, someone being hurt, you know, me hurting someone's feelings, someone else's opinion, rejection. I mean, and so many of them get played out in our relationships. And to me, if you can go back and identify when it started and then like what you just said, Corey, which is, oh, my coping skill was to avoid. Like someone else may uh, deny or act out or do addictions or become provocative or whatever it is, rationalize. You all have, we all have these ways we survived because of that incident. Mm -hmm. The thing is, once we get out of our home and we, you know, leave at 18 or whatever, we're still using all of those coping skills, right? So what I do a lot of is I work with someone on what are some new behaviors? Once you've identified what the old behaviors are, one being addiction and another being co-crazy, right? What are these things that aren't working anymore? And what are, say, three behaviors you can do now instead of avoidance that are really going to help you work with this fear, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's really thinking of tangible solutions and identifying behaviors and new skills so you don't have to walk around, you know, not that you wouldn't maybe have a fear of rejection if you went on a date, it might pop up but you'd be able to identify it and say, oh, that's from the past. I mean, I think that's so much of the freedom is just identifying that a lot of these things are not happening now. <laughs> you know, so much that happens in our systems is from, you know, 40 years ago, I've had yeah. clients that are in their 70s talking about the gal at the high school dance that didn't speak to them. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, and because of that, oh, I'm not going to speak to women for 40 years. I mean, it's like this stuff is so significant, you know, sure. but if we don't know it, it's really hard to shift it. I don't know yeah. if that answered your question, but it, yeah, it, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like paying attention to that resistance within ourselves, paying attention to where those, what those rubs are 
what those spikes and thorns in our in our reactions are hey yes and to me you know i swear every spiritual book or book i read on you know recovery and stuff it always talks about and i do believe this and the buddhism stuff you know it's what we resist persists i mean i just believe that now in my heart of hearts Mm -hmm. if i resist an insight or i resist something I need to do. It's not going anywhere. Right. And it's going to come out in some other way. I may not feel like, you know, buying a bag of Coke tonight, but I might go, you know, get ice cream or, what. you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's still, how am I going to deal with it where I can get to the other side? Yeah. You know? That, uh, that goes well with, uh, something you wrote there in your book, You wrote, as a child, I felt responsible for my father's happiness and felt controlled by him, which led to a crippling fear of upsetting people. And I really like the the terms he used here, manifesting as the relentless, low-grade, chronic hum of anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. And that's uh, something that me and Corey talk about. We call it the beehive. Absolutely. I can uh, totally relate to that. So you're talking about being aware of the origin of uh, I've done some work towards that end. And uh, so where does the beehive start? And then identifying, I guess that like, I mean, for me, I I still struggle with that anxiety and I I know where it comes from, but I can't seem to, to find a way to, to kind of uproot it. To quell it. Right. Right. Um, Fix me, doctor. No, no, no. I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> you know, I just think it's so interesting because anxiety is like really such a common way we all kind of can, you know, relate to one another. You know, I feel anxious. And I guess if I look at, and this is another reason I talk about anger a lot, because the thing about being codependent is codependents, you know, have this way of, oh, I'm the nice guy, but I really believe, and I believe this with addiction too, that there is so much repressed anger. Mm. And I really think the resentment piece, and I'm just talking about what's underneath anxiety. I think there's fears. I think there's grief. I think there's unresolved wounds, but I also think there's years of resentment There's years of pushing feelings down that weren't processed. Mm -hmm. And anger to me is, uh, this is why I think of the culture today too, because everybody's pissed off. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just really important to give kind of space to, you know, I'm really upset about this thing. And if I don't deal with it, I believe the result is anxiety. If I have a fight with my partner But I think it's, you know, but I deny it and say, oh, she didn't really upset me or he didn't really upset me. The next day, I believe someone's going to have some anxiety because they're not processing what happened the previous day or the previous week. And that's what codependents do. Oh, it's okay. They didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. And that's why I talk a lot about the both and because it's so easy to minimize, oh, my feelings aren't really hurt or whatever. And yet it's going to come out somewhere. So the anxiety, like you're saying, it's like really looking at. And again, it goes back to being in touch with what's happening inside. 
did something happen that I'm resentful about? Have I worked through all that, you know, anger towards people or resentments I'm holding? And the other piece is what are the meanings I'm making up? You know, we talk a lot about Mm -hmm. the meanings because two people can grow up in the same household with the same parents and have completely different experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I just think the anxiety is like, what am I not allowing myself really to experience underneath the anxiety? That would be, that's how I've worked with it. Yeah, you know, no, I, I think you're absolutely a hundred percent correct yes. there. It's uh, I and I know like I I have a I'm 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 a very angry individual and have Got been it. for a long time. Like uh, I and uh, you know I you get good at uh, pushing things down and uh, I've absolutely. gotten better these you know as an adult I've gotten better at uh, kind of stopping the anger train or the flow yes. of anger from coming in. But right. I believe that started very early. Absolutely. And so there's probably a ton of stuff there. And it because it happened so long ago, I don't know how to parse that anger out. Yes. Because you know what you know, I will do with you guys? I don't know if you'd want me to do this, but I have this great way of helping people work through some of the that ang- the anger and the wounds. Like I have this sheet I use. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's from being in AA and other programs and stuff, but it really helps you because I, you know, my old sponsor used to say behind every resentment is a wound. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the anger is a way to protect yourself. But I think there's so many different pieces of it because so- an event can happen. Say you were abused and you're five and something happened. You know, there's not just what happened, but there's what I decided about myself. There's what I decided about people in general. There's um, what I'm making up in my head now about is the world safe? Is it not safe? There's all these ways I figured out how to cope. There's what I call the lies I tell myself because of this event. Mm-hmm. And um, and then to me at the bottom is always the fear. So the fear is, you know, if I'm abused, you know, fear of what people are going to think of me, fear of upsetting someone, fear of my own feelings, fear of getting angry. And so there's this sheet I have and I'll like email it to you or whatever. And yeah, please do just try to practice one resentment, you know, think of an event and try to work through it and see if you can get in touch with more pieces of it. Cause you're absolutely right. Tons of stuff happens to us. And the anger to me is a tough one because I think, and for a lot of men, it's like, it's hard to, you might be able to get it out through athletics or some, but resolving the underlying hurt and wound is harder. And moving on and getting to forgiving, it's not even forgiving them. It, to me, a lot of it is forgiving myself. It has know? to be. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the, I think that's the only solution. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. The only, uh, the only realistic one anyways. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to take a look at that. A biggie. It's a biggie. And the thing is, I think most people like either people say, Oh, I'm not the type that gets angry or there are people like you say that I know I'm angry. You know, I mean, I think anger is so easy to deny and repress, especially if you're a good person and you're in the helping fields. That's (laughs) right. Sarah, you know, I, I, I've talked about this on the show before, but it was so there was for me, there were two, but 
two traumas that I can think of the, the literal trauma of other people's pain, suffering, death, yes. injury that I experienced as an ER nurse. Yes. And all the while I'm, you know, developing this build, building resentment for the fact that I was sort of felt like I was betraying myself in this job. I was constantly running on empty, constantly yes. buying my own needs. And then because I was sort of for various reasons, wired to be this people pleaser, people yes. would say to me, Oh, Corey, you're so good at your job. Do you, do you <laughs> like what you do? And I would say, I'd be having the worst day. And I'd say, Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and then I would, in my head, I would think like, Oh, why did I just say, I love it. I don't love it. I fucking hate it. I hate it. And, and, and looking, I've had to kind of like I get it. that. And I, so I've had to heal from the actual trauma that I experienced literally at the job, but like that betrayal of self. Yes. You know, there was a, there were wounds that caused me to betray myself there that caused me to, to say, I love it because I thought it was making people happy. And I thought it would yes. then, give, you know, other people would then validate me more. Yes. But that, that me perpetuating that because I yes. was afraid of facing it. It, it made those wounds feel sort of larger, I think, in a, in a yes. sense. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's cognitive dissonance just going around and around in a circle. That's exactly what I was just saying. I, you know, I mean, I, I really believe when I'm working with someone too, the resentments towards self are the hardest ones to get rid of. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know what are. I mean? Like, it's yeah. one thing when you feel like you have justified resentments, but the problem with resentment is who's being hurt? Yeah. That's the thing, yeah. right? When we're angry and resentful, people are not walking around. They don't even know who's resentful. Who's being hurt? I'm the one. I'm the one that's hurting myself because I'm pissed off all the time. So mm -hmm. that's the other thing with anger is it doesn't help anybody, especially me. No, You know, well, that's the thing. If there was an angle that you could take on anger as being a useful thing, it would be that it is an energy source that you can be aware yes. of that is pointing you in the direction of something that needs to be corrected. Absolutely. But the amount of energy that I feel it drains out of me, maintaining yes. my, you know, day to day, whatever, while right. dragging this, this beehive around with me is yes. debilitating sometimes. Yes. Perhaps yes, I exaggerate, absolutely. But it, it uh, sometimes it feels, uh, it feels heavy. It is heavy. And it yeah. does weigh us down and it's cumulative. I mean, mm -hmm. think about it. I mean, I'm working with a guy right now who's 82 mm. and, you know, he's been clean and sober for like 40 years, but he's never really dealt with his underlying kind of anger and codependency and father trauma and all this stuff. And like, so I, I give the assignment, you know, um, make a list of names of people that you feel like you're still angry with. And then we do this process. And it was so overwhelming to him because he said, you know what? I can't believe how angry I still am. And I thought I had kind of resolved it, but how it's showing up for him as he's depressed. That's right. why he came to see me. And, um, you know, just that that's the other symptom. Like if you, it is the other symptom yeah. out or in, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the, it's the smoldering anger that's, yes. that takes your energy. And yes. when your energy go, goes, it turns to apathy. And yes. when apathy shows up, depression sets in. Yes. 
That's uh, that's what I've yes. noticed in myself anyway. Yes, absolutely. So it's really key to, you know, that's what I've been doing with him to try to externalize it and get it on paper and start getting some space from it. Because like you're saying, this stuff could have happened years ago. I mean, stuff can happen yesterday, but it's the stuff that we're still dragging around that's really the heaviest. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Good for that. Anger's the guy's 82 and he's doing that kind of work. Hat tip yeah, to that I mean, gentleman. He's, you know, he's, <laughs> he is. He's been kind of this, you know, and he's in a very codependent relationship with his wife for 45 years. She's literally done everything for him. And I think, you know, they're struggling a little bit. So he's really needing to look at himself. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, what are the options? I mean, stay depressed or do some, I mean, that's the thing. There aren't many options. I mean, especially if you get into that depression and just stay there, there's, you know, you can wait till it passes. I mean, some people do that, whatever, but trying to get some movement going. Yeah, at 82, you're probably a little more anxious to get going, you know? You would think. <laughs> so maybe this is a good segue to the next question. Please. Um, learning to set boundaries is a crucial skill. Um, voicing and being firm on what you're willing to tolerate from others helps prevent resentment, anger, confusion. On uh, page 159, you talk about how setting boundaries takes courage, self-love, trust, and belief in your sanity and your serenity. So... Where should people start if they're having trouble drawing that line? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it's like, because you're right, people are terrified. Again, that's why I talk so much about, you know, I say just sit with yourself for five minutes a lot, because so much of setting boundaries is tolerating what's happening. And it's not, again, it goes back to that thing where it's not really tolerating what's happening for the other person as you setting the boundaries. It's what's happening inside of me when I say no to my kid having another cookie or mm -hmm. whatever it is. I mean, parents mm -hmm. are, oh God, we could get into, I just did a, a talk to a bunch of parents and I'm telling you, oh, the parents of today, <laughs> it's like, it makes me crazy. <laughs> you know, such low tolerance for feelings. It's like, and I mean, you with your child, it's just, it's so important to know how to set boundaries with kids. This is another, we've gone off on a tangent. I've gone off on the tangent. That's okay. That's okay. It's an if important tangent. <laughs> it, well, I mean, if you don't do it when they're two and three and four, literally, it ain't going to get easier at 16. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. saying what I see with my addict clients a lot is they never set boundaries when the kids were little and then they get sober and now they've got these wild kids running their home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's like they have to start with noticing, oh, my God, I'm feeling really uncomfortable when mm -hmm. I tell my kid he's got to come in by 11 or whatever. And it's really tricky when people get sober because they have so much guilt, right? You know, p sober parents are a whole other ball game. And it's just saying to yourself, literally, this is the best thing for both of us. This is the best thing for both of us. But setting boundaries in general, I mean, we could do a whole episode on parenting. Setting boundaries in general, I say to people, do it with, you know, the girl at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know if you have Dunkin' Donuts here, but, you know, start with, you know, when they didn't put cream in your coffee or 
you know, some person at work that you don't really feel an energy with that you can say, oh, could you do this assignment that you, you know, you didn't do this right or whatever. Start with relationships that are less threatening. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's what yeah. I say to people. And the other thing to remember is when you start setting boundaries, you're going to feel guilty. Mm. (laughs) You got to kind of know that you're not going to feel comfortable for a a while. That's a good point. It's a great point. Until you understand, I think once there's an understanding there that you're actually doing overall, the the, the sum is more good than than bad. And once that, that fact is set in, then maybe that guilt will relent a little bit. Yes. And saying to yourself, it really is always the best thing for the relationship. Even if someone's upset about it, if you're speaking your truth about what you need, you know, you're saying, you know, oh, honey, I can't do that tonight, whatever the situation is. It's really honesty in a relationship. And if you can't set a boundary, you're not really being honest in your relationship. It's true. So anyways. Yep. It, it, and, and it's a huge, I have demolished relationships <laughs> by uh, by not being honest about that. Which it's activates the, the anger and resentment. Of course. I mean, that's how that's connected as well. Like when you're talking about work, and you're over-functioning, Corey, and you're doing all this stuff that you don't want to be doing. What's happening? Fueling resentment. Yeah. You know, because like towards yourself and others, yeah, you know, totally. so it's tricky. Sarah, can you give us an example of, because when I think about that discomfort and setting a boundary, there's like yes. two to four minutes of like really intense discomfort. Like it's yeah. it's the hardest right when you do it. Yeah. How do you, how does, how can someone get through that initial, yes. like sh- super short term moment know, of discomfort? So you know, it's so funny because I worked with this. Um, have you ever heard of Peter Levine? He does this somatic experiencing work. He's, he's uh, Gabor Mate and the whole body stuff. He's a person that started this type of therapy called somatic experiencing. And the belief mm-hmm. is basically that everything that's happened to us is in our bodies and is stuck somewhere energetically. And the only way we can really heal is to, is to really get in touch with how it's manifesting. And he talks about, you know, when you're having a feeling, all that's happening are intense bodily experiences. So, I mean, it's like, really saying to yourself, all that's happening is my body is experiencing some physiological sensation. That's it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, (laughs) so I think, I think also that if you can practice with a few that aren't that challenging and you get to the other side, I think you can know that you, you can survive it. Right. I mean, if you practice with the girl with the coffee, then, you know, when you set a limit with your kid, oh, we're going to get through this and I can tolerate this. But the thing is, is it's the fear question, right? I think for a lot of people, what I work with is what fear is getting activated when you set the boundary and then you take it back to the early trauma. So. For example, if uh, 
my son is here. God, that's he was just he just was home with his girlfriend from New York and they left literally five minutes before I got on with you guys. Speaking of boundaries. Oh, we're leaving. <laughs> we're leaving as I'm getting all amped up. <laughs> Anyways, so say you're setting a boundary with a teenager and they're getting angry and you're noticing you're getting up. You're, you know, it's hard to tolerate, but you're going to say you need to, what I used to tell my son, you need to get off your Xbox after two hours. What's happening for me is not necessarily fear of my son having feelings. What's happening to me is some old fear about speaking up. Right. So then I take myself back. I'm like, why am I so afraid to speak up? Oh, because my dad was a really angry person. And when I used to speak up, he would lose it. So I'm putting that on my setting boundaries experience with my son. So it's always kind of looking at, you know, and I say that about anger, it's never about the present moment. It's the same with setting boundaries. It's remembering the activation in your system is really not about the present situation. It's really about the past. Mm -hmm. So you're right. It's hard to tolerate the 30 seconds or whatever it is, but I think it's practice, practice. It's just practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true, Sarah. Like I, I was the memory that came to mind for me was this this past Christmas um, going to pick out a Christmas tree and uh, got out into the way back of my town and um, got onto this Christmas tree farm and the and the farmer walked walked us way back to look at the Christmas trees and he said by the way they're eighty five dollars a piece for a five foot tree and I thought I had this like all in like fifteen seconds thought if I say no to this guy I have to walk all the way back to the car and and set that boundary. But then I thought, well, I'm not paying $85 for a Christmas tree. So I have to set the boundary and I did it. And it felt, it felt great. Mm. It felt yes. great. To do it. And then I thought, geez, a couple of years ago, I would have just like forked out the $85. Oh, I amen. So yep. I would have been so um, paralyzed by having <laughs> right. to set the boundary, but it does right. feel good. Right. It like, there's something that happens to our confidence, our self-esteem. Our, yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a self-efficacy thing for sure. And uh, I think it's also important to put in there that I believe that many times when I've set boundaries with people, I expect it to go a certain way that is usually yes. much more catastrophic than it actually, yes. actually goes. So yeah. lots yes. of times people are very accommodating. They're like, yes. oh, you know what? I didn't even think about that. Uh, right. And in my mind, you know, it's it's bordering on malicious, right? Right. But, but it's just something they're not they're not paying attention to or whatever, and everything's yes. fine. That's such a great point, too. You're absolutely right. So many times when we feel afraid of speaking up, it always works. Most of the time, it just works out. It's not like people are going to lose it on us. I mean, most of the time, you're absolutely yeah. right. And if yeah. they do lose it on you, then you learn something too. Oh, well, right. <laughs> you can still survive that. That's absolutely right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll never forget that the classic example I have in my head of like a, a child boundary thing is I was in this mall one time and I noticed there were like 10 family members all in this kind of 
half moon again, like looking at something against the wall that I didn't know what was happening. And they were all, and some of them were grandparents. It was like an extended family all together. And some of them were kind of kneeling down and, and I heard them talking. So I'm like, Oh God, who's, you know, who's against the wall? Like why? Literally there was 10 of them, grandparents, parents, uncles, and they were there for literally, I don't know. I watched them for eight minutes or something. And I was, what I kept wondering what is happening. And I literally suddenly one of the people left the semicircle and there was a two-year-old, a two-year-old that had 10 people captured that they were negotiating with a two-year-old. I mean, negotiate with a two-year-old that had them <laughs> captured. It's like you pick them up and you leave them all. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was so, it was like such the quintessential example of being hostage to somebody, not being able to set a boundary and it not being good for the two-year-old. Because now think about that. The two-year-old thinks they can control 11 people. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? that, that, all that does is scare kids, frankly. That's a whole other conversation. But I mean, it's just wild. It's wild what our fears can, to the degrees to which they can take us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Boundaries are huge, though. <laughs> for sure. And really for your own happiness and peace of mind, too, because I think when we don't set boundaries, again, the anxiety, the anger, the preoccupation with the event, all of that stuff can take us out. Yeah. yeah. So it uh, requires awareness. It requires, I don't know what kind of, uh, it's a skill like anything else, I guess, just checking in with yourself, seeing where yeah. the newest sources of anger, resentment, and anxiety yeah. are coming from, and then associating those with whatever the source is and trying to deal with it as it comes in. Because it's yes. never being a human being. I mean, part of the, part of the whole situation Absolutely. is, uh, is dealing with those types of encounters Absolutely. and relationships. So, right. Yeah. A great skill set to work on and, uh, One not, other not easy, tool that, yeah. One other tool that might be helpful for you or your audience is whenever I'm feeling kind of, I don't know, you know, that feeling when you're kind of off and you don't know what it is, and you're like, did something happen? Am I upset? Mm. I write you know across well. the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I write across the top of a piece of paper. What am I angry about? What am I sad about? And what am I afraid of? And I just free write and fill just. And literally, if I just focus on those three words, anger, sadness, and fear, a lot of times I get to what's happening un huh. underneath the anxiety. That's a you know great, I mean? yeah, sometimes that's a great exercise. Writing helps. Yeah. Cause sometimes in our unconscious, we know what's going on, but we can't, we can't articulate it. I mean, obviously sometimes when we just start talking it out with someone, we can get to it. Yeah. It's like, it's the same mechanism as brainstorming kind of right. You're yes. Yes. I mean, it's really free association, like Freud, you know, free associating just kind of what's coming to your mind. I mean, who's that woman that does the morning pages. Oh, she wrote The Artist's Way. Do, do you know that book? I can't remember her name now, but she had this thing where every morning do these write three pages of just your thoughts. And they're called morning pages. 
And mm. it's this way of just getting out whatever's kind of accumulated in the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good skill too. God, I know it's two o'clock. I feel like I've talked forever. I'm so sorry. I could talk about this stuff forever. No, you're you're yeah. Uh, yeah. you're a wonderful guest, Sarah. And uh, <laughs> you've taught us a whole bunch of stuff here. Is there anything you wanted to uh, let people know about your book and uh, where where oh. they could find it? And Oh, right. I mean, the only thing, yeah. I mean, you can get the book on Amazon. You can go mm-hmm. to my website. I have a few other, you know, talks on my website. The thing that we just launched um, that we're doing right now is called Leaving Crazy Town with Finn and Sarah. I think I sent you guys a video. Yep. Um, so we started this YouTube channel, a friend of mine who's an attorney who's um, sober uh, six years. And he and I have a similar sense of humor. So um, we wanted to talk about serious topics and yet have some lightness and joy because addiction can be so intense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Leaving Crazy Town with Finn and Sari, you can subscribe and we put out a video each week. And that's really what we're focusing on right now. So yeah, okay. or my website, drsaramisho.com. Okay, perfect. I'll put uh, links to all of those in the description for the uh youtube video and uh it'll be on our website as well excellent and you know if anything i can be of service to you guys in any ways please let me know and i'm going to email you the resentment sheet please yeah, do please, yeah yes would... i really will because it's really helpful i i i'm interested in that yeah thank you sarah it was so nice to meet you too you're lovely thank you so <laughs> much anytime right back yeah, likewise. at you yeah likewise yes. yeah, any way i can be of help i mean definitely Okay. And keep up the great work. Will do. Um, Thank you. We'll say goodbye for now and enjoy your new place and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sarah.